Welcome to the February 10th edition of the Global News Review. I'm Patrick Ryan, founding president of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. And I am here today with Dr. Breck Walker and Ambassador Dick Bowers. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Pat, how are you? Fine here. Good to see you. And it looks, uh, I see a palm tree, uh, Breck. You're on the uh, French Riviera. <laughs> I wish. I'm down in uh, not so sunny Florida today. Okay. And, and Dick, are, are you uh, in uh, Paris, France or London, England? Got the, got the mute going. Dick, you got the mute going. Pardon me. Sorry, I'm holed up at uh, Nashville, Tennessee, where I live. Okay. okay. Uh, Al Albert Drive? Albert Drive. Sir, Sir Albert in a can? Yeah, you know, it's funny. My brother lives out in Riverside, California on Albert Place. Let's <laughs> go figure. <laughs> I don't know. Some some psychic uh, connection going on there. Yeah. Um, uh, talking about mute, we had uh, uh, Representative uh, Bayan Sami Abdul Rahman from the Kurdistan Regional Government last night. I and like in, that. In, uh, in in some warm up uh, communications, uh, she and I reversed uh, having mute on, and uh, she she opined that. The, the new phrase coming out of the pandemic is, you're on mute. <laughs> That's good. That was a good program last night, Pat. I enjoyed that. Very well, for anybody, for anybody who uh, missed it, uh, take a look at youtube.com slash TNWAC, where we have over 100 uh, videos uh, from our webinar series over the last year. And last night's edition was uh, really a, a terrific uh, hour with uh, Representative Bayan, who uh, uh, talked about uh, Kurdistan, the Kurdish history, uh, the history of uh, Erbil going back 8,000 years as a, uh, yeah. I, did, a I did not know community. that was the oldest continuously habited city in the world, she said. She says, she says the Erbil and uh, Damascus uh, go back and forth uh, in competition for ah, who's okay. older, but I guess it's kind of kind of hard to nail that down uh, exactly. Uh, but uh, uh, Bayan was, uh, uh, a great guest. We had we learned a lot about uh, uh, Kurdistan and Iraq and what's going on there and the referendum and and we uh, even talked a little bit about Little Kurdistan, the community here in uh, yeah. in Nashville. Uh, well, before we uh, begin, we'd like to mention that uh, February is Black History Month, and we want to make take a minute to highlight a, a great uh, African American's contribution uh, to American diplomatic service and. Uh, Ambassador Bowers, I think uh, you've got the lead on that. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd like to highlight the incredible service and wonderful career of a man named Edward Joseph Perkins. My friend Ed Perkins was born in Sterlington, Louisiana and spent his childhood on a farm in the northern part of that state. And he was raised by his grandparents. But when he was 14, he went to live in the, with his mother in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, and then moved with her to Portland, Oregon. So he experienced the uh, wonderful South at the time when the, when the uh, Jim Crow was in its full bloom. After getting out of high school, he joined the army and went off and had served in South Korea and thus began his love of foreign lands and cultures. And after the army, he was out a little bit and then decided to join the Marine Corps and called that one of the best decisions that he'd ever made. He met his wife, Lucy Ching Mei Liu in Taiwan. Her parents were against their marrying, so they eloped and Lucy became his partner as they traveled the world. 
1972, Ambassador Perkins passed the Foreign Service Officers Exam and became one of the very few Black American diplomats then serving our nation. In an interview last year in the Foreign Service Journal, he was asked if he found the State Department in 1972 to be welcoming. And let me just share a little of his answer. Quote, there were no other Black diplomats in my orientation class. There were only 20 or so Black American diplomats around the world, and most of them were posted to Africa. The department was not welcoming at the time, and Blacks in the Foreign Service faced prejudice. He goes on to talk a little bit in that interview about his first assignment, and he says that when he was looking for an assignment in one of the geographic bureaus, uh, none of the bureaus wanted him. There were no vacancies. And then finally, he was selected to be deputy chief of mission, the number two person in our embassy in Mozambique. But the ambassador there didn't want him, saying, quote, that he needed someone who had experience as a reporting officer. And Ed did not have that at the time. So he was sent to Accra in Ghana as a political officer to get that experience and thus began the incredibly successful career of Ambassador Edward Joseph Perkins. From 1981 to 83, he was the deputy chief of mission in Monrovia, Liberia. And returning to Washington, he directed state's Office of West African Affairs until 1985, when he was sent back to Liberia, this time as the US ambassador. The following year, President Ronald Reagan appointed him to be our ambassador to the Republic of South Africa, where he served until 1989. He was the first black U.S. ambassador to serve in that country. After South Africa, Ambassador Perkins was then appointed as Director General of the Foreign Service. And in 1992, he was tapped by President George Herbert Walker Bush to be our U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. And he served in that capacity till 1993 when he was named U.S. ambassador to Australia. His final Foreign Service posting in 1996 um, was to Australia. And then, I'm sorry, and then in 1996, Ambassador Perkins retired from the Foreign Service and began a second career in academia at the University of Oklahoma. So Ed Perkins was a remarkable man coming from a farm in Jim Crow, Louisiana to the highest ranks of international diplomacy. He was a friend and he served our nation with distinction. And he died last November at the age of 92. So I was proud to have known and served with him. Now, Dick, uh, I, I think you mentioned when we were talking about the Ralph Bunch last week, uh, you, you mentioned Ed Perkins and mm -hmm. uh, you have some uh, personal uh, experience with him. Yes, he, he uh, agreed to swear me in when I was given the oath of office to be the US ambassador to Bolivia. So he was very nice, gentle, kind. He and I worked together quite a bit in the Department of State. I mean, we never served together overseas. Okay. And what was your impression of the, uh, the atmosphere um, in the State Department in your early years there? I, I know when I joined the Navy in the early 70s, uh, there were a lot of racial tensions uh, still in the military services and uh, in some places, some military bases around the country, there were occasionally uh, violent outbursts yeah. and, and it was concerning to 
military well, uh, to implement, uh, you know, a, a full racial uh, racial equality uh, policies. Well, I I joined in '67, the, the Foreign Service in '67, so that was five years before Ed Perkins went in. But Ed Perkins was uh, a, probably almost. 12 years or more older than I. So he had, was in the Army, was in the Marine Corps, held a number of kind of positions with the USAID and other things before he finally took and passed the Foreign Service Officer again. The reality, when I came in, um, I don't remember, I think there was something like 50 or so officers in my class, none of whom were Black. And of those 50 or so, only four were women. And of the four women, three of them were gone within two or three years because if they got married they were no longer allowed to serve so it was a very different kind of atmosphere um, those few black foreign service officers that were existing uh, tended to have their careers focused on africa mm -hmm. and similarly there were very few asian american foreign service officers but those that were tended to have their careers focused on Asia. So it was a very different world, very white, very male, Ivy League, Berkeley, Stanford, Harvard, Yale. It has changed a lot, but not nearly as much as it still needs to change. Yeah. All right, well. Uh, hey, Breck, you're muted. <laughs> I had one quick question. <laughs> was, was it a rule actually that married women could not serve in diplomatic postings, even if their husband went with them? It, 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 yes, in the wow. late, in the 60s. And then what happened is um, if you were married and a male, for example, my fitness report, you get a yearly fitness report, or if you switch jobs when you leave, you get a fitness report upon departure. There was a fitness report on the spouse and her willingness to represent the United States in the manner in which it should be represented. Oh, interesting. Did your that, wife usually outpoll you? you? <laughs> yeah, she got better ones than I did. <laughs> but it was, uh, that ended in the early 70s. Wow. Well, there were similarly in the Navy, the uh, the uh, officer fitness report fitness reports would include comments about the, the spouse and their uh, their support of the, yeah. you know, the the crews and uh, et cetera. At officer candidate school, uh, the spouses were invited in for a special uh, training session from the commanding officer of the base on on how to be a Navy wife. Um, yeah, yeah. We had been in the Navy. My wife, who had been in the Navy. I uh, wasn't real thrilled about the, some of the things they were trying to push. Yeah, well, you know, and the, the protocol was was uh, also very important. The wife of a foreign service, uh, when we arrived at post, for example, I would go and call on the ambassador in his office, right, and report in, basically. Uh, my wife was expected to call upon the wife of the ambassador and to have her card to leave on the plate right, a calling card, all that kind yeah. of stuff. And there was tea served and there was cookies and that kind of was very, very formal and kind of old school. They don't do that anymore. I think they bite them over for a drink now or something, so. It's uh, <laughs> it's a different world, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, gentlemen, let's, uh, let's with no, no further ado, uh, jump into uh, our program here. We have, uh, 
our uh, topics of the week. If uh, you could uh, uh, run us through that, uh, Ambassador Bowers. Well, we got Biden's foreign policy uh, and his speech. Basically, he went up to the State Department and talked to an incoming officer class like Ed Perkins in 1972. And I, in 1977, we had incoming uh, orientation classes. The president never came to one of ours, but uh, Secretary of State Dean Rusk came and spent probably two hours sitting at a table talking to us about the world and what he saw was going on. So anyway, Biden's foreign policy speech is topic one. Iran nuclear deal, the clock is indeed ticking, is two. And third, we're going to remember George Schultz a little bit. Okay. And Breck, uh, question of the week. I, I, I think we're, think we're okay on pronunciations here. I hope so. <laughs> you, never, you never know, though. You never know. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> the question of the week is, uh, President Joe Biden announced the United States would no longer support Saudi Arabia in its military campaign against the Houthis in this Arabian Peninsula country. And the possible answers are A, Yemen, B, Qatar, C, Oman, and D, Djibouti. So we'll have Terrific. the answer at the end of the program. Okay, uh, thank you for that. And uh, let's jump into our first topic, which is uh, President Joe Biden's foreign policy speech. And, and a lot of what uh, he had to say um, was, uh, reflected in earlier pronouncements uh, pronouncements in his campaign uh, speeches and uh, uh, his inaugural address. But uh, he did uh, specifically uh, take time uh, to make a, a specific foreign policy only speech, although um, given his, uh, uh, the announcement that he is interested in um, a number of domestic issues as his top priorities, uh, one being the pandemic, two being the economy. He's also put climate change, which you could count as both a domestic and a, a foreign policy issue, uh, as well as uh, healing of divisions in the country. But uh, this was specifically oriented to foreign policy. And I'll, I'll just read uh, an excerpt of it uh, for you, uh, his lead in, which uh, sets the tone. And he basically uh, uh, reiterated, I, I don't know if you recall, gentlemen, seeing his introduction of Secretary Blinken and uh, UN ambassador uh, who uh, made the pronouncement that America is back, multilateral, multilateralism is back and so forth. Well, in, in Biden's speech, he said America is back. Uh, he reemphasized that. He said diplomacy is back at the center of our foreign policy. Uh, which for many of us is, is a good uh, omen, um, seeing less military responses to solving international problems and more use of diplomacy. Uh, he goes on, as I said in my inaugural address, we will repair our alliances and engage with the world once again, not to meet yesterday's challenges, but today's and tomorrow's. American leadership must meet this new moment of advancing authoritarianism, including the grow growing ambitions of China to rival the United States and the determination of Russia to damage and disrupt our democracy. We must meet the new moment of accelerating global, accelerating global challenges from the pandemic to the crisis, uh, cl climate crisis to nuclear proliferation, challenging the will only to be solved by nations working together. Rebuilding the muscle of democratic alliances that have atrophied over the past few years of neglect and I would argue abuse. 
American alliances are our greatest asset and leading with diplomacy means standing shoulder to shoulder with our allies and key partners once again. Today, I'm announcing additional steps to course correct our foreign policy and better uniting our democratic values with our diplomatic leadership. To begin, Defense Secretary Austin will be leading a global posture review of our forces so that our military footprint is appropriately aligned with our foreign policy and national security priorities. And while this review is taking place, we'll be stopping any planned troop withdrawals from Germany. We're also stepping up our diplomacy to end the war in Yemen, a war which has created humanitarian and strategic catastrophe. So that's, uh, that's the marker he sent, set out. And uh, the, the speech, uh, I would uh, suggest that uh, everybody who's interested in the, the course of US foreign policy in coming, uh, coming months and years, uh, take a look at uh, his specific uh, comments on, on each of these sections. But I'll, uh, I'll share with you a, uh, an excerpt that the foreign policy did looking at the keywords from the speech. And you can just glance through here and get a sense of uh, where his emphasis uh, lies. And uh, he, uh, he, he talks about the New START uh, Treaty Extension, which is, uh, is on a, a short timeline. Uh, it expires in February. And the United States has the option of renewing it for five years. Now, New START is the Strategic uh, Arms Reduction Treaty, uh, which was uh, signed between Russia and the United States uh, 10 years ago, and it expires. But there's an option to uh, continue it uh, in place as is and hold the current uh, limitations on strategic nuclear weapons. Uh, I thought, I thought that was agreed to, Pat. But didn't we say yes and the Russians say yes? Yes, yes, that's correct. This is, uh, but in, in his foreign policy speech, yeah. he talked about the, the importance of, uh, of getting the new start uh, right. uh, on track. There was some question about whether the Trump administration would let it lapse. They were trying to uh, uh, bring in China into the agreement right. and, and that was a non-starter. So uh, with regard to Russia, we've got the new start treaty, uh, but he did comment uh, extensively on uh, US-Russia relations and uh, as you can see in these key phrases that uh, were pulled from his speech, uh, he's focused on uh, the Kremlin's activity, especially with regard to uh, cyber activity and uh, hacking and disinformation, et cetera. Uh, and he's uh, pushing back on that. He commented on the imprisonment of Alexei Navalny, uh, who was poisoned, uh, went to Germany to be treated on his return to Russia. He was uh, arrested in Moscow uh, they held a, uh, uh, the, the judge was at the airport and uh, detained him. And then he was uh, sentenced to uh, several years in prison uh, for violation of a, a uh, probation from an earlier charge that he says was, uh, was trumped up. Uh, in, in the course of all that, he made, uh, made some speech talking about Putin's legacy would be one of uh, a man who was a poisoner. Uh, so he and Putin have... Uh, a little uh, little ground for uh, for compromise, and uh, we've seen the uh, the waves of protest in the, in Russia over the past couple of weeks. He talked about the competition with China, uh, wants to work with Beijing. Uh, part of that is the uh, climate agreement, but uh, in a wider sense, uh, it, the U.S. is returning to the the Paris Agreement, also returning to the World Health Organization. Uh, it, we're concerned about the emerging technologies, AI. 
uh, cyber, uh, especially the use of cyber weapons against the United States. Uh, as, as you mentioned, uh, and I read in the opening remarks, uh, the Defense Department will be looking at the global footprint of American troops around the world, uh, halting the uh, withdrawal from Germany. Uh, a lot of attention to uh, the Middle East, the Arabian Peninsula, especially Yemen, where there's been a, uh, a new policy announced that the United States will not support the uh, uh, coalition led by Saudi Arabia and UAE in their uh, involvement in the civil war in Yemen. The United States was involved with uh, advisors and uh, supportive uh, uh, weapons, uh, weapon systems and munitions. So that's, that's being rolled back. And um, uh, I think we're gonna have a serious review of uh, the relationship with Saudi Arabia, uh, still an important partner on a number of things, especially uh, countering terrorism and maintaining uh, uh, stability in the Persian Gulf region. Uh, but we have uh, a number of uh, items in the portfolio uh, to, uh, to take a look at with regard to Saudi Arabia's uh, human, human rights uh, uh, history and especially the, uh, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi and um, our relationship with uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Um, talked about the, the State Department. I think uh, there's a, a terrific effort and acknowledgement that the State Department has uh, uh, has to be uh, restocked, rebuilt. Dick, what what's what would be the right uh, characterization of, of revitalized? How about that one? Yeah, revitalized. Well, he, but I mean, he he really gave a pep talk. There were there was a an orientation class that he spoke to. So there were yeah. some like 50, 50 incoming foreign service officers just starting their careers, and he, he used such terms as "I have your back," right? And and he also said something like, um, "You are the center of all I intend to do." So look around. You are the face of America, and it matters. So he was, you know, I think he. He understands the the need to put a team on the field in foreign affairs, which includes diplomats and warriors and aid people and teachers and whatever. So it's not just one element of the stool. And I think it's very well received. I mean, Bling is uh, highly regarded and um, the team is off to a good start. Well, you know, uh, General Mathis, Mathis, uh, Mattis, excuse me, uh, get my Marines mixed up. General Mattis uh, is famous for saying that uh, the State Department needs to be better funded. And if you don't uh, uh, send them some money, you're going to need to send us a whole lot uh, more bullets uh, right. because uh, foreign policy, the, the diplomats, and, and you, know, you and I have talked here on, on this program about uh, the importance of diplomacy is really the, the leading edge in America's uh, uh, smart power abroad. And if we don't have diplomats in place, diffusing situations and, and ensuring stability in many of these uh, conflicts yeah. around the world. And Bob, gonna... Bob Gates, I mean, when he was SecDef, he got that. He understood that very well and, and pushed hard for the balancing out of the various legs of our international efforts around the world. So Yeah. Hey, Ambassador, I had a quick question for you on this topic, if it's okay. I mean, it certainly got a lot of press coverage the during the Trump administration, the hollowing out of the State Department, how many mid and senior level diplomats with lots of experience left. Uh, that's going to take a while to build back, or do you think that, that uh, the Biden administration can attract some of those people with all that experience back? 
Uh, how do you view things going forward in terms of senior experience diplomats? I think we've got a we've got a dip in the curve. I mean, if you want to have a very very senior diplomat today, you should have hired that person 25, 30 years ago, mm -hmm. right? Because it's a flow through system. It's the same, same as the military. You need so many Lieutenant JGs before if you're going to make admirals down the road 25 years from now. Yeah. So as far as, I think he, I think it may be possible to get some of the folks to come back, if, but it's, it's going to be hard. Um, four years of Trump has really taken a, a huge blow to the State Department. And well over a thousand officers have left. And you know the, the State Department officer corps is not that large. It's uh, you know fewer people work in the State Department overseas than are on one US aircraft carrier, for example. It's just, it's just not, not a big organization. But I think what will happen is that the, the, the interest in working in foreign affairs and becoming a foreign service officer will peak back up again now that you've got rid of Tillerson and Pompeo. And so you'll have a better flow. And I would imagine that they will be ramping up and trying to bring more foreign service officers on board so that we have them down the road when we need them. Is there a mechanism, uh, Dick, in the, uh, uh, the bureaucracy of uh, the foreign service to bring people in at, at, at higher levels, uh, people who have uh, previously served, or is it solely uh, you recruit them at the, you know, the you can, age and bring them up? There's, there is a way that you can re recall people to active duty, similar to the military service, you retire, but you're in the reserves, if you will. We don't have a, a very uh, staunch reserve corps like the military does. But if you can be identified, in fact, that happened to me, I was almost sent to Iraq. And the reason, because they were trying to find more senior officers who could go do the regional reconstruction team heads out in the boondocks when we were trying to plus up the civilian side of the effort rather than the military. And in fact, I had gone through everything and then they said, you have to come next week. And I said, well, I'm closing on a house. I can't come next week. I'm kind of, I'll, I'll be there right after I close. And they said, oh, we don't have, we can't wait for you. So I didn't go. But a number of my formerly retired colleagues did go. Well, if they called you back now and you could be ambassador anywhere, what country would it be? That's a good well, question. Well, if they call me back, I think I'd say I'd be happy to become the American Consul General in Hamilton, Bermuda. <laughs> <laughs> It's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. I did it. that job, actually. I was there for three months. <laughs> so, you, so you're wow. qualified. All right. Well, um, we're going to, uh, uh, Rick, if it's okay, we're going to hold uh, George Schultz to topic number three. Uh, on okay. The way out, we'll, we'll close with that. So we're going to uh, jump into Iran, and uh, the, the clock is ticking on uh, on nuclear weapons. And we've, we've talked about um, Iran and the joint comprehensive plan of action uh, over time. Uh, but this is uh, just an update on where we are now that the Biden administration is, is in place. And I think uh, we've uh, come to the conclusion that, that it was uh, uh, a significant uh, downturn in, in American foreign relations, uh, perhaps even a blunder when uh, President Trump repudiated the 2015 JCPO or the International agreement uh, in which Iran accepted significant limitations 
on its nuclear program. Uh, these were restrictions designed to prevent it from developing nuclear weapons, building up enough fissile material to, uh, to be able to build a nuclear weapon. And rather than uh, pressuring Iran to accede to tougher limits, uh, the decision to abandon the deal in 2018 in the Trump administration and reimpose uh, what uh, came to be known as the maximum pressure campaign, uh, sanctions and such, uh, it really just gave Iran uh, the reason uh, and an excuse to uh, evade the uh, uh, terms of the agreement. And they began uh, last year returning to the production of fissile material beyond what had been uh, included in the agreement. Now, in, in the campaign, President uh, Biden, then candidate Biden, promised uh, the United States would rejoin the, the agreement, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, JCPOA, um, at, uh, at the earliest opportunity. So now we're, we're in that, uh, that window and uh, we, can, we can reflect on uh, a, a couple of pieces of history here. Uh, you may recall Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu at the United Nations warning about Iran uh, uh, being able to produce an official material to build a bomb and indicating in kind of a, a cartoon bomb uh, display where, where they were and, and where they were going. Uh, you can also see uh, President Rouhani of, of Iran uh, visiting a nuclear uh, facility. And uh, just a, a little background and context, uh, Iran started building uh, a nuclear program back in the time of the Shah of Iran in the, the 70s. And the idea was to have uh, atomic energy provide uh, electricity for the country so that they could use their oil uh, rather than burn it and uh, produce energy, electricity uh, at home. They could sell their oil abroad and, and uh, continue the income. Uh, they largely uh, uh, were a, an oil economy. Uh, so that was the impetus behind the nuclear power plants. The idea uh, lingered for a while. They, they built a plant in cooperation uh, with Russia uh, through the 80s and, and 90s in Bushir near the Persian Gulf. But then they uh, began a more widespread uh, research and development uh, and production capability around the country, which led to the alarm in the West and uh, eventually sanctions and the threat of war and uh, what eventually uh, turned into during the Obama administration of an, of an agreement among what was called the P5 plus one, the permanent five members of the United Nations plus uh, Germany and Europe, moderated by the European Union uh, alongside Iran uh, following secret negotiations the United States had with Iran, uh, facilitated by Oman, the, uh, the group, the P5 plus one, agreed in 2015. Uh, I don't know where they came up with the name Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, but uh, there it is. That's, that's the Iran uh, nuclear deal, or the JICPOA, as, as some of the insiders refer to it. So uh, that's, uh, that's how we got to, uh, to where we are. Now, in, in terms of uh, the Biden administration, there are uh, some obstacles to uh, getting back into the deal and, uh, and a timeline. Let's talk about some of the obstacles first. Uh, the, uh, the sequencing of return uh, could be a problem. Iran expects to, the United States to lift the sanctions first because it was President Trump, uh, his administration, that withdrew first. And while the demand from Tehran may be uh, legitimate if you look at it uh, on the outside. Uh, Washington has uh, indicated that they want Iran 
to come into full compliance before lifting the sanctions. Uh, another obstacle deals with uh, what compliance constitutes. Uh, during the uh, negotiations, there was a barrier to the terms of the agreement uh, dealing with the targeting of uh, US citizens and permanent residents, organizations and individuals that engaged in trade and business with their uh, Iranian counterparts. And those, those sanctions remained intact. So that's a, a stumbling block. A third uh, issue is that uh, the Trump administration imposed uh, a number of sanctions against Iran under the guise of terrorism and human rights uh, that were aimed at preventing the Biden administration when it uh, took office from returning to the deal. So there were some roadblocks uh, put in place uh, that would need to be removed, uh, especially from the point of view of uh, Tehran, uh, who are now uh, laboring under these, um, these obstacles. And they, see, they would see that uh, the Biden administration would need to remove them. Uh, another uh, obstacle to uh, returning to agreement is, is that the United States, by virtue of withdrawing from the JCPOA and uh, uh, connected to that, uh, violating a UN Security Council resolution that went, went along with the agreement, there's uh, uh, reduced credibility of the United States. So Iran has to ask itself the question, what would happen in four years if uh, the Biden administration is replaced by another administration that uh, didn't look at the JCPOA as uh, in the United States interest and canceled it as uh, Trump did in 2018. Also, the, uh, uh, the maximum pressure campaign uh, damaged the Iranian economy. It put uh, sanctions in place and hundreds of billions of dollars of losses were incurred by the, uh, the Iranian uh, economy. So uh, the Iranians had demanded compensation for those losses uh, prior to the return of the uh, JCPOA. Um, there are a couple of additional uh, issues uh, in the way, but let's, let's turn to the uh, question of timing. Now that the Biden administration is in place, it has indicated that the Iran was uh, an uh, important topic. It's uh, called for a uh, National Security Council review of the JCPOA and looking at getting back into the deal. Uh, but uh, the Biden administration only has a small amount of time before it becomes increasingly difficult uh, on uh, the Iranian side to, uh, to reach a deal. Uh, we have coming up uh, on March 20th, the beginning of the Nauru's uh, Persian New Year uh, where the whole country shuts down for two weeks. So getting anything done in that period will be problematic. And then after the, uh, the holiday, um, Iran will be having a presidential election in June. And the campaign uh, leading up to that, uh, President Rouhani is no longer eligible to run for another term. He's term limited to uh, two terms. So he won't be uh, a candidate. And there's uh, strong feelings that if the JCPOA is not signed by then that uh, hardliners in Iran may uh, have uh, a leg up in, in the elections. So uh, the Biden administration has a few weeks in which to uh, to get uh, organized with um, uh, a, a return to the JCPOA. And just a, a quick uh, reflection on where we've been with uh, our relationship with, with Iran. You can see over the decades, we uh, had a very close our relationship in the 70s. Uh, we sold weapons to Iran. We had many uh, economic advisors. There was a brisk trade between the United States and Iran. We saw Iran 
as one of the pillars of security in the Persian Gulf uh, against uh, Soviet expansionism from Central Asia down into the Gulf. Uh, the other pillar was Saudi Arabia. So in the uh, 79 revolution, we lost Iran as an ally against uh, possible uh, Soviet interference. And during the 80s, during the Iran-Iraq war, the United States sided uh, with support to Iraq through uh, our Gulf allies. Uh, we, uh, we launched the tanker escorts to protect uh, shipping against Iranian attacks. In the 90s, there were uh, uh, increased uh, sanctions uh, over a number of uh, uh, issues. There was the uh, US uh, Gulf War to liberate Kuwait from, from uh, Iraq um, following the Iran-Iraq War. And then uh, you can see that uh, uh, in the late uh, 2010s, uh, the US and Iran negotiated the uh, agreement first uh, with talks uh, in private in Oman and then the, the P5 plus one uh, negotiations. And you can see some of those uh, uh, consultations going on. The Senator, uh, excuse me, Secretary Kerry uh, and uh, Foreign Minister Zarif on the, the Iranian side uh, when we were speaking with uh, Iran about JCPOA. You can see next to Secretary Kerry, Secretary Moniz, who was uh, Secretary of uh, Energy at the time and, and was uh, very involved in in negotiations. So gentlemen, no. there we are. We, uh, we, we have an important agreement that um, uh, and anybody who thinks that we want to stop, uh, I think the priority is prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. Uh, that's uh, job one. And the JCPOA is the quickest way, uh, the most efficient vehicle to get us to that point. Uh, one thing I will mention is that uh, in December, the Iranian parliament passed a law requiring the Iranian government to reduce the presence of the inspectors at their nuclear facilities from the International Atomic Energy Agency um, in uh, two months time, and we're, we're at that point now, um, and also to uh, begin to increase the production of fissile material up to the 20% um, range in, in uh, uranium enrichment. And 20% may sound like one fifth of the way to 100%, but in, in the, the way the nuclear fuel cycle works, when you're at 20, um, it, it's taken you seven times the amount of work to get to that point. And it will take you one times as much work to get to the 90% of uh, enrichment. And that's where you're in the, the weapons grade range. So if they uh, start producing fissile material at 20%, they're just uh, getting uh, very close weeks, if not months, uh, or months, if not weeks, uh, away from having enough fissile material for a weapon, and um, there's general belief that, that once they have the fissile material, they have the ability to weaponize that, and they have uh, sufficient uh, medium-range uh, ballistic missiles to uh, to carry uh, such a weapon. So we're uh, the clock is ticking on a number of uh, issues: the production of fissile material, and the window for diplomacy to get us uh, back away from the brink. Hey, Pat, I, this is not really much to do about anything, but it's, I think it's an interesting observation if this is, uh, I'm, I'm asking for confirmation on this, but Congress never voted on the JCPOA ever, did they, directly? No. It, um, this is an executive agreement, I believe. That's correct. It's, it's not a treaty. It was not ratified by the Senate. Uh, however, the United States uh, did uh, uh, agree to the UN Security Council resolution, which was uh, binding on uh, the United States. 
So we are technically in violation of a UN Security Council resolution, but it is not a treaty which would be enforceable as, as US law uh, and, uh, and definitely binding on the United States. Um, in fact, I think, and again, this is just interesting to me, but back in 2015, I think there was a procedural vote relating to this. It wasn't on the substance of the treaty, but it was a procedural vote. And of course, the Republicans controlled the Senate then, but I believe the 56 senators voted effectively against it in that procedural vote, not enough to override a veto, so it went ahead. Do you think it would get 51 senators in favor of uh, rejoining today? You know, uh, the problem with the JCPOA is that uh, no matter how much uh, analysts and uh, diplomats and others may see it as definitely in U.S. interest that we restrict uh, Iran's ability to build a nuclear weapon, it doesn't enjoy a lot of domestic support. There are a lot of groups that uh, uh, don't see it as in the best interest of this or that agenda. Um, the, uh, the Israeli government obviously is against uh, the JCPOA, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has spoken out against it. Uh, coincidentally, a number of national security officials and intelligence officials in Israel have uh, uh, said openly that uh, restricting Iran's development through the JCPOA was a good idea. So it's not a monolithic view in Israel. However, it is the view of the Israeli government that uh, this is not a, a good step in their, on their behalf. So that, uh, that view extends to a number of organizations in the United States that advocate for, uh, for Israeli national security, and they have a lot of influence with uh, congressional uh, activity. So I think uh, you know, we would, we would need to, uh, to do a whip of the, the Senate there and see who was on what side of uh, the issue, but I don't think it would, uh, be, it, would, it would not come down on partisan lines. Uh, the, the White House would obviously try to get all the Democrats lined up and some Republicans, but uh, we would need to take a, a hard look at uh, where the votes were. There would be some Democratic uh, defectors. Um, I think in that vote that you referenced, there it was not a monolithic Democratic uh, support for for the JCPOA. Uh, likewise, there's uh, some international um, uh, disagreements, especially among the Gulf Arabs. Uh, they are not thrilled with the JCPOA and uh, rapprochement with Iran. Uh, the Europeans on the other side though, they're fully supportive of the JCPOA. They uh, were able to return to uh, some economic activity with Iran when the JCPOA was, was signed. And then when President Trump pulled out in 2018, uh, that caused a major um, flare up in the relationship with the Europeans because the US was putting uh, secondary sanctions on uh, European businesses that uh, continue to do business with Iran. So there are a lot of competing interests and uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, uh, if the Biden administration, uh, they apparently recognize uh, the urgency of this and are moving with the uh, best speed that they can to uh, to get somewhere. But as I mentioned, there were some obstacles, uh, especially- get somewhere. Where are they going to get? Well, as, as I recall, Pat, too, in the Trump administration, both Secretary of Defense Mattis, I believe McMaster as National Security Advisor, and Tillerson all were not for pulling out. They, they were, as I recall, arguing with Trump, don't do this. Yeah, that's right. There was uh, internal uh, disagreement with the president, uh, but he had announced in his campaign that the, uh, uh, the uh, Iran nuclear deal was uh, the worst uh, worst thing he'd ever seen, the worst deal. He was going to get a better deal 
And uh, you know, three years of maximum pressure, especially under Secretary Pompeo, um, who had laid out uh, a dozen steps that Iran needed to take uh, before the United States would, uh, would get back in an agreement, the maximum pressure uh, was just met with maximum resistance on the Iranian side. And uh, they've, they've been, uh, they are rationalizing, they're, they're leaving the limits on fissile material because of the uh, Trump administration. So that's where we are. I will mention that uh, we have a, a terrific program coming up on the uh, 25th of um, February with uh, uh, Ms. Kelsey Davenport, who is the uh, Director for Nonproliferation uh, at the Arms Control Association. She'll be speaking at a uh, global town hall right here at the World Affairs Council uh, webinar uh, venue on the 25th of February at uh, 5.30 p.m. So take a look at our calendar on the website and sign up for that and you will get, uh, I don't think we're gonna get into the nuclear fuel cycle, but you'll get a lot of details on what's going on with the Iran deal and uh, the importance of, uh, of keeping Iran from getting a nuclear weapon uh, to US interests in that region. Gentlemen, anything this else reminds, on the... This reminds me of, uh, of Ronald Reagan adage, you know, trust but verify. This all boils down to T-R-U-S-T. I mean, at the, your point, Pat, you know, if, if the, the Iranians decide to move down a particular pathway, can they rely on the United States to live up to our side of the deal? Yeah. And, and just the, uh, the footnote on, uh, on all of this, a reminder that in June, there's going to be an election for a new president in Iran. Uh, and the uh, Republican guards uh, may have some candidates that uh, enjoy some success if we don't have a deal. And Rouhani is out. We don't know what, uh, what the moderate uh, progressive wing and, and we use the word moderates with regard to Iran advisedly, uh, but there are definitely factions within Iran that are vying for, for power and the JCPOA may be a campaign issue one way or the other. Okay, um, I think we've uh, filled everybody in on Iran and uh, we're up to topic three. We've got uh, enough time to talk about uh, remembering uh, George Schultz and uh, Brecht, take the lead on that if you would. Okay, thanks. So George Pratt Schultz died last Saturday at age 100. And uh, we talked on the uh, Global News Network report program and decided to do this piece on Schultz because he is not well known today and he, and he should be to anyone interested in American diplomacy in the Cold War. Uh, he was one of the most accomplished Americans, I would argue, of his generation across the fields of academia, business, and government. And to boot, he's one of my favorite secretaries of state, maybe my favorite secretary of state. He graduated from Princeton in 1942 with a degree in economics. And uh, always, I'm always looking for a Tennessee connection. I noticed that his senior thesis at Princeton was on, quote, the agricultural program of the Tennessee Valley Authority. So uh, there's that. After graduation, he went into World War II as a Marine and fought uh, in the Pacific and had real combat, serious combat experience. He came back and received a PhD in industrial economics from MIT, and from there, his career soared. He taught e economics at MIT Chicago and Stanford, and his field was uh, labor relations and employment. 
in the 1970s. He was the CEO at Bechtel Corporation, which is one of the largest privately held engineering and construction firms in the world. And he was only one of two people to, ho to hold four cabinet level positions in the US government. The other was uh, for interest sake, Elliot Richardson. But Schultz served as Secretary of Labor, Secretary of the Treasury, and Director of the Office of Management and Budget, the OMB, during the Nixon administration. And he served for six and a half years as Secretary of State during the Reagan administration, which of course was the period in which, for all practical purposes, the Cold War essentially ended. And he has been, the, he was the longest serving Secretary of State in the post-war period. Now the accolades, uh, have rolled in. Paul Wolfowitz called him the 20th century's most consequential Secretary of State, and he said that uh, Schultz was the civilian equivalent of General George Marshall. That's pretty high praise. Madeleine Albright said, former Secretary of State, that, quote, we have lost a champion of diplomacy, an advocate of American leadership, and a model of public service. Mikhail Gorbachev has said, Without Reagan, the Cold War would not have ended, but without Schultz, Reagan would not have ended the Cold War. Henry Kissinger back in the day said, if I could choose one American to whom I would entrust the nation's fate in a crisis, it would be George Schultz. And then one of my favorite little anecdotes, the presidential historian, Michael Beschloss, he told a story recently of Ronald Reagan showing up for a key meeting with Mikhail Gorbachev, unprepared for that meeting. The meeting took place, it was over, Gorbachev left, and Schultz took Reagan into another room and told him that that must never happen again. In so many words, Schultz told him, get your act together, Mr. Mr. President, this is important. And Beschloss commented, that is what real secretaries of state do. I love that story. Anyway, the fall of the Soviet Union when Ronald Reagan came into office in 1981 was unthinkable by almost everybody. Soviet American relations were as bad as almost any time in the previous Cold War up to that point. And Reagan made it, made it worse, initially made it worse early in his term. He adopted a confrontational approach. There was a big military buildup and Reagan was the expert in aggressive in your face rhetoric. Uh, Reagan definitely had an attitude of, we are not accepting this standoff. We, the United States can win the Cold War. And of course that unsettled the Soviets to to no end. Gorbachev became the Soviet leader in 1985, and he was perceived by some in the West, in the words of Great Britain's Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, that Gorbachev was a man the West could do business with. And indeed, he was. Now, I can't do justice in a few minutes to the story of Reagan and Schultz's outreach to our bitterest enemy in the mid-1980s, but I think what they did is one of America's finest diplomatic moments ever. And if you have any interest in learning more about American diplomacy, how it should be practiced and what great things it can achieve, uh, I recommend a book by Don Orberdorfer, who's a former Washington Post reporter. It's called The Turn. It's written in the either little, uh, I think it's written in the mid 1990s, which will give you the ins and outs of how Reagan, supported by Schultz and Gorbachev, came to end the Cold War. Now to Reagan's great credit, he saw an opportunity for peace and with Schultz as his primary advisor, and despite incredible opposition from much of his own administration, including his Secretary of Defense, Caspar Weinberger, and his CIA chief, William Casey, despite that opposition, opposition, Reagan flipped from what many of his political opponents would have called warmongering 
to collaboratively work with Gorbachev and his administration to bring a simmering relationship between two superpowers bristling with nukes to bring that relationship to a peaceful end. Now, the signature accomplishment of the Reagan administration and of Schultz's effort as Secretary of State was probably, in a Cold War context at least, was probably the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. It was the, firm's, it was the first arms control treaty to eliminate an entire class of weapons. But Reagan and Schultz achieved so much more than that. And again, I commend the uh, Oberdorfer book to you. But I'd also like to spend just a moment on what kind of person Schultz was. Uh, I think everybody thought of him as a man, almost everybody thought of him as a man of unusual integrity for a person in political life. He was around when two of the biggest scandals of the American presidency in the post-war period occurred, Watergate under Nixon and Iran-Contra under Reagan. And in both, he emerged unsullied. Under Nixon, uh, Schultz was ordered by the president when he was secretary of the treasury to have the IRS investigate his political enemies. Schultz refused what he saw as an abuse of power and he elicited a response from Nixon on the Nixon tapes where Nick Schultz is not there, but where Nixon is commenting to his aides. Uh, what does Schultz, why does Schultz think we put him over there? What a candy ass. So criticism from Nixon was high praise indeed in this instance. And in the immediate aftermath of Iran-Contra, Schultz almost got himself fired by telling Reagan that Reagan had made a mistake and that he needed to quit defending those aides who had run amok on his watch. And in testimony before Congress, Schultz said about Iran-Contra, this arms for hostages deal was totally outside the system of government that we live by. I don't think desirable ends justify means of lying, deceiving, of doing things that are outside our constitutional processes. Woe that we would have men like that today. Again, the Beschloss story. This is what real secretaries of state do. Ronald Reagan ended up awarding Schultz the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And let me add quickly just a couple of comments on George Schultz's thoughts on the diplomatic arts. And I'm interested in what uh, Dick thinks about some of this. Schultz liked to compare diplomacy to gardening. Planning and keeping a garden, he would say, requires constant tending to keep things going down the right path. Diplo quote, diplomacy is kind of like that. You go around and talk to people. You develop a relationship of trust and confidence. And then if something comes up, you have that base to work from. If you have never seen anybody before and you were trying to work a delicate, difficult problem, that's a hard task. Progress in any diplomatic effort requires a lot of gardening beforehand, close quote. And relating to the gardening analogy, Schultz said this on his 100th birthday last December. December 13th marks my turning 100 years young. I've learned much over that time, but looking back, I'm struck that there is one lesson I learned early and then relearned over and over. Trust is the coin of the realm. When trust was in the room, good things happened. When trust was not in the room, good things did not happen and everything else is details." Close quote. Condoleezza Rice said recently that his favorite, Schultz's favorite tactic in any difficult initial meeting was to say to his counterpart, quote, you write down what worries you and I'll do the same and then let's work our way down that list. 
And this is not to say, though, that Schultz was some idealist. He was a realist, I think. And another of his favorite sayings was this. Negotiations are a euphemism for capitulation if the shadow of power is not cast across the bargaining table. Uh, Schultz, in my mind, was very much uh, a secretary of state in full. And talking about George Schultz, my last comment, we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't, you have to, if you're talking about George Schultz, you have to talk about the tattoo of the Princeton mascot, <laughs> a, tiger, a tiger. Is it really on there? On his posterior, reportedly the left side. Now, Schultz never publicly confirmed that he had a tattoo, although he was asked about it several times by reporters and so forth. There was partial confirmation at a 90th birthday celebration for Schultz when his successor, as Secretary of State James Baker, in a toast, joked that he would do anything for Schultz except kiss the tiger. So there's a great <laughs> book about, about James Baker just out, too. I give a plug for that. The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life of Times of James A. Baker by Peter Baker, No Relation, and Susan Glasser. But it's a great book if you're interested in uh, Baker's career under Reagan and uh, under uh, George H.W. Bush. But uh, we've lost a great American who had a wonderful career, uh, 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 very much a tribute to George Schultz. And that's all I have, Pat. OK, terrific. Um, Dick, any, any uh, comments from Poggy Bottom? Uh, I, I think he's the greatest Secretary of State I ever worked for. So he's a great man. Okay. He came to, came to Germany many times during this, uh, the time I was over there. You know. Uh, was always kind, gracious, thoughtful of other people. I mean, some people in this business can, can become real, using the German word Arschlochs, you know. But, uh, <laughs> uh, it's pretty close <laughs> to the English it. one. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, he, he, he was not. He was always a kind, gracious, and not to mean that he was a pushover. You know, he knew what he wanted to try to do and you need to do your work, so. Good job, All right. Dr. Walker. Hey, uh, Breck, you you asked me when we uh, were reviewing slides who the guy with the mustache was next to uh, next to Gorbachev there. Uh, Translator. Well, uh, yeah, during during the uh, the program here, I, I did a little quick uh, googling, and uh, for for your entertainment purposes, uh, here he is. Uh, his name is Pavel Palaschenko, and you can uh, find him in Wikipedia. Uh, for more of your edification, but uh, that's that's who that guy is, the, the translator. Yes, does it say what he's have, doing now? Uh, I'll have to get, I'll have to dig back into it. But uh, um. yeah, we uh, uh, we do admire that uh, that mustache. Okay, guys, we're we're uh, <laughs> pressing time here, but we want to get uh, to our question of the week answer. And um, uh, Dick, we turn to you for that. I'm sorry, uh, Breck. Well, the answer is, thanks, thanks, Matt. Sorry, the answer to the question is A, Yemen. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's the country where uh, we are no longer supporting uh, the coalition uh, involved there. Uh, well, great conversation, uh, uh, guys. We, uh, we touched on some things that we don't normally do, a tribute to uh, Ed Perkins and, and George Schultz. Can I ask one 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 question of you, Patrick? Uh, what is the relationship? Are are the Yazidis Kurds? Are all no. Yazidi? Huh? No, it's a different ethnic group. 
Kurdistan uh, comprises uh, quite a number of different ethnic groups. A number of different groups. ethnic groups. Okay. Yeah. I thought that maybe that they were a subset of Kurdish people, but they're not, huh? It's a separate ethnic group. But the Kurds okay. and the Yazidis are, are uh, uh, closely aligned, and uh, the Yazidis were really... Well, uh, the Yazidis live in Kurdistan, by and large, right? Yes, um, uh, they do. And they were really uh, brutalized by the uh, uh, onslaught from okay. ISIS. Uh, several years ago, and the Kurds uh, yeah. and the United States uh, jumped in to uh, protect them, but thousands were lost. And as uh, Representative uh, Bayan said last night, uh, there are still thousands unaccounted for. And the UN recently stood up a, uh, uh, a group, UNITAD, to uh, investigate, yeah, investigate uh, that whole business. I have one last okay. comment. One last comment, which is, I'd like to thank Jim Shepard for joining us today. So we had a an attendee. <laughs> we'll I have to take that. a look at. We'll have to take a look at our population in the the room here and, and continue <laughs> to uh, to bring people in to watch the uh, recorded version. Uh, maybe we'll investigate a new time slot. Bring in new talent. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, that may be the answer. All right, guys. Um, great to talk Thank with you, guys. you, and we'll we'll see you next week.